If you would, go ahead and remain standing. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. And for context, we're going to start around verse 8. So let us stand together as we read God's word. Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that, did not, that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel." under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat. Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she came and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, so... She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name whom I worked with today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, besides he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women, of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Please be seated. Last week, we began to dive into Ruth chapter 2, and so I want to set the stage again for us today. Naomi has lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. One daughter-in-law chose to stay behind in Moab while Ruth committed to staying by Naomi's side. We have that beautiful 
few verses in Ruth chapter 1 where Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. So Naomi and Ruth have returned to Bethlehem. We find Naomi in a, in a bitter state of mind towards God. We find Ruth taking initiative to provide for her little family. We've talked about God's sovereignty, that it's not just a coincidence that Ruth found her way to Boaz's field or that Boaz was there that day, but rather we see the sovereign working of a loving God towards his people. We were introduced to Boaz, and we see the great kindness with which Boaz shows to Ruth, saying, don't go glean in another field, don't go away from here, stay here under my protection. Stay with my young women, eat with us, drink with us. Boaz goes as far as to command his servants to let her glean among the sheaves themselves, which is far and above beyond, it's far beyond what Jewish law commanded of him. Furthermore, Boaz tells his men to leave grain on the ground for her. We know that what she gleaned was a large amount for a day's work, nearly some 27 pounds of food that could keep them going for at least three months. We have a picture of Ruth's grueling work. Gleaning in the fields was not an easy task. Ruth would have to stoop and pick up every single piece of grain. She'd have to hold it, carry it herself. 27 pounds she brought back into the city. And once she got home, her work wasn't done either. We see that barley needed to be threshed, which if you've never seen that process, is a labor-intensive process where you put the barley into a bag and you literally beat it to separate the seed from the seed heads. Once that was done, she was still not done. She would have needed to winnow to separate the grain from the chaff. And this is where we pick back up in verse 18 of our text today, where Ruth arrives back home after a hard day's work. And scripture says that she took it she took it up, the grain, and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and that, she also, that Ruth also brought out and gave her cooked food that was left over from the meal that she had earlier. So you can imagine Naomi in this bitter state of mind seeing this large bundle of grain come in. This is not a likely thing she was expecting. Most gleaners struggled to get enough grain for maybe a day's worth of food. But here, Ruth comes back with months' worth of food. And we see Naomi's shocked response in verse 19, and it says, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? This is the first time that we've seen any level of excitement or anything from Naomi. Where did you glean? Where did you do this? 
and blessed be the man who took notice of you. If we keep reading in verse 19, it says, So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi's response may be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And we see why she is so excited about this beyond the collection of food. Say, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So we see this surprising change between the bitterness of Naomi and somewhat excited at this point. To the point where we have to add, is this the same Naomi that at the very beginning of this said that God dealt with her very bitterly, that God had sent her away full, but the Lord had brought her back empty, or that the Lord had brought calamity upon her. Naomi calls on the Lord to bless Boaz. And here's where we see that it was cut through the kindness of Boaz that we see this change in Naomi. Not only did the Lord provide them with food and protection, but he has done so through this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Now, we don't have this concept today in Western culture. The closest thing that we have to it is maybe when you deal with law and with hospitals, the idea of your next of kin, the person that will receive the inheritance that you have for them, or the person that, if you're unable to make medical decisions, would make medical decisions for you. But this concept in the Old Testament was so much more than that. We see that a close family member was required to be this redeemer. We see it in Leviticus. Uh, I didn't write down the chapter. I'll find it for you later. But it says, if a stranger or a sojourner uh, with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner, or, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. So you have this concept, again, of being able to sell yourself into slavery if you were unable to pay your bills or collect your harvest. And we see this would fall to usually the closest relative. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his cousin, or a close relative of his clan. We see that this is beyond just pulling people out of destitute situations. We see it as a way to keep a clan's inheritance intact. We see the redemption of property in Leviticus 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, then he, he himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. And it goes through the process of buying the inheritance back. We see that the Redeemer had a responsibility if a family member was murdered to avenge that murder. We see a picture of the Redeemer assisting in any family members in lawsuits. We even see, as we'll see later in Ruth, marriage come along so that the deceased family, that their name could continue. 
As we continue on our text, Ruth adds another example of his kindness, saying, you shall, saying that Boaz told her, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Again, Naomi's response, it is good, daughter, that you go with this young man, that you go uh, out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. And we end the chapter with, so she kept close to the young, men of Bo, uh, young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So over the last two weeks, we've discussed this chapter. We've discussed the kindness of Ruth. The kindness that she showed Naomi by leaving her native land, by leaving everything that she knew, coming to a new land, a new people, a new God. And now we've seen the kindness of Boaz in allowing Ruth to glean among his field in his kindness of allowing her to work beside his young women and providing protection to her and allowing Ruth to partake in the midday meal, even going as far as instructing that additional grain should be dropped for Ruth. Last week, we discussed the sovereignty of God at every step in this story. And make no mistake, there are no coincidences. It is God's sovereignty that brought Ruth to Naomi in the first place, that brought Ruth back home with Naomi, that put Ruth in that field, that put Boaz in the field in the same day. It is God's sovereignty at work here. We've seen Naomi's bitterness turn into recognizing what God has been doing for her. And where I want to focus this morning is really just in a single verse in this. It's actually in Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. It reads, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. There are times that we read Scripture and the modern English does not do justice to the original language that is there. And this is one of those times. We see the word kindness there. That may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, the Lord's kindness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. The original word used there is hesed. Now it's interesting, there is no direct translation into Greek or English for this word. Bible translators have done their best to translate it from, uh, from Hebrew to Greek to English. And in, depending on which translation you're reading, you'll see this word often as love, as goodness, as kindness, maybe faithfulness, mercy, devotion, favor. This word is used over 250 times in the Old Testament. The closest that I believe that we get to this word in English is the idea of God's steadfast love or his loving kindness. One scholar puts it this way, that has said, describes something that happens within an existing relationship, 
whether between two human beings or between God and man, in human relationships, has said implies loving our neighbor not merely in the terms of a warm emotional feeling, but in actual acts of love and service that we owe to the person simply because he is a part of the covenant community. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we get a pretty good picture of this. It says, He has told you, O man, what, uh, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to, but to do justice and to love kindness, to love his said, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, it's very easy that we can look at this and see the loving kindness of Ruth. Again, that idea of don't urge me to leave you. Where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. I will die where you die. Your God will be my God. That is overwhelming kindness on Ruth's part. We see it with Boaz and his overwhelming kindness to Ruth. But what we cannot lose in a book like Ruth, in just four short chapters, what we cannot lose in this story is that it's the Lord's steadfast love shown through the kindness of Boaz and Ruth. It's God sovereignly working in and through his people. But at the very center of all of this, is this concept of said this, this steadfast love, this loving kindness that God has for us. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Here we have a description of this type of love and where it comes from. First John 4, beginning in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that, we, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has loved. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father was sent, has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We skip together a few verses ahead. We see this idea that we love because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother. For he who does not love his brother, whom, his, whom he has seen, cannot love God. 
we're left with a commandment here. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. How often do we sit down? I know for myself it's not nearly as often as it should be. And contemplate and meditate on God's steadfast love for his people. A love that is unmerited, that is unearned. A love that is so different than what the world will tell you love is today. Because the world will tell you today, I love you because. I love you because you do this, or you are this, or you give me something that I don't have. Versus the love of God that says, because I love you, you will be my covenant people. One of the greatest examples that we have of God showing his steadfast love is in Exodus 34. It says, the Lord passed before him, he's talking about Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We have to remember exactly where this is in Exodus. This is literally right after the people make an idol for themselves to worship because they were not happy with what God had given them. You talk about unmerited grace, unmerited mercy for God to come before Moses and once again show that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I don't know about you, but this is something that I can too easily take for granted at times. It's too easy to simply overlook this at the beginning of every day. God's steadfast love encompasses the fullness of his positive attributes. It is who God is. When we talk about the positive attributes of God, we talk about God's goodness, his grace, holiness, eminence, immutability, Justice, love, mercy, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, transcendence, and his sovereignty. All of these get wrapped up in this concept of hesed. In this concept of God's faithfulness to his people, of his unchanging, undying, unmerited love for his people. Psalm 136 is a hymn of praise that specifically talks about God's steadfast love. It is believed that this was most likely written by David, that he did this as a way for the priest to lead the people in a hymn every day to remind them of this. Bear with me, it's, it's a little bit long. But I think it's important if we talk about the steadfast love of God that we really dive into this. Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever with a strong hand and an outstretched arms because his steadfast love endures forever to him who divided the Red Sea in two for his steadfast love endures forever and made Israel pass through the midst of it for his steadfast love endures forever but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of the Bashan. For his steadfast love endures forever and gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate for his steadfast love endures forever and reached us from our, rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Imagine if that was something that we meditated on every morning when we woke up. We discussed last week times in our lives where it seems like God is punishing us or that the Lord is somehow loves us less. We go through times and seasons of illness, of death, of financial issues. But what if we spent the time studying God's word of recognizing that all that happens to us is because God's steadfast love endures forever? What if we reminded ourselves of God's steadfast love for his people? Would your view of suffering change then? Would our seasons of doubt or despair become more bearable to us? If we reminded ourselves daily of the greatest act of love possible, the greatest act of love possible is Christ putting on flesh, on living a sinless life, suffering the cross, taking the fullness of God's wrath that we so richly deserve. 
of his resurrection, of his ascension, of him interceding for wretched sinners at the right hand of God. Would this daily reminder change how we look at our own suffering? Would it change how we view other people's suffering? Would it change how you look at the people around you that are dying in their sins? Would it change how we choose to love one another? Charles Spurgeon had a beautiful sermon that covered Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. That scripture says, the steadfast, of the, lo- the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In his sermon, he preached saying, every morning we may say, what a mercy that our bed did not become our tomb. What a mercy that in the night we were not alarmed with fire, that our couch was not consumed and ourselves in it, that the house was not broken into by wicked men, that no convulsions of nature terrified us, that no cry of anguish like the shrieks that woke up every parent in Egypt was heard in our house because our children were dying. Such cries have been heard by some of us. And we have had dreadful nights which we shall never forget. Let us live as long as we may, but every morning in which we wake without such alarms, terrors, or after a quiet, restful night in which God has given to his people beloved sleep, we have had a new mercy. And we may at once look to the Lord and say, we praise you that another night is gone. But every morning also brings a new mercy because every morning ushers in another day. That new day is a reason for praise for we have no right to an hour. We have no right to even a minute, much less a day to the sinners around us especially. It is a great mercy to have another day of grace, another opportunity for repentance, a new reprieve from death, a little bit more space in which to escape from hell and fly to heaven. Ah, soul, suppose that you had never seen the light of another's rising sun, but have heard instead thereof the dreadful sentence, depart accursed. Depart accursed one into the darkness which will never be pierced by a ray of light. How terrible would have been your portion. So what it is, what a mercy it is that you are still spared for a new day. So it's my prayer today that we would remember these words in Lamentations. Remember this concept of God's undying, unchanging love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Even in the worst of our seasons, even the most pain, even when we think we've lost everything, the steadfast of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, and they are new every morning. 
So this morning I will leave you with the words of that great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Reads, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning in Thee. Thou changest not, Thy compassions they fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever wilt be. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature and manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful truth it is that you are immutable, that you do not change. The love with which you have shown your people throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, is the love in which you love us today. A steadfast, unmerited, unchanging love. In which that you provide a way for wretched sinners to be made holy through the work of your Son. Lord, let us be reminded daily that if we woke up this morning, if our lungs had air in them this morning, that is a new mercy from a steadfast and loving God. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen.